I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, in the second part of our two-part series on utopian societies, we explore European and Eastern influences. Was America fertile ground for those with a utopian impulse? So, I mean, if you think of some of the classic groups that um, that are around, I mean, the Hare Krishnas, for example, really coming out of the 1960s, 1970s, uh, mostly, you know, college-age kids that look around and say, you know what? Yeah, we've been handed the world in a silver platter, but we don't want it. And they were attracted instead by this alternative model coming out of India. And later, you know the saying, a burden shared is a burden halved? Well, we're going to hear parenting experiences from someone who's lived in an intentional community for more than 20 years. The children are all known by everyone and definitely know which homes they can just barge into (laughs) and definitely know which homes are not Uh one of theirs. Community living and America's history with utopian ideas, sex, and cults. All ahead on Life Examined. Last week, author Akash Kapoor talked about what it was like growing up in the utopian Indian community of Oroville. It was based loosely on spiritual ideals, handed down from the yogi Sri Aurobindo. This week, we're continuing that conversation and further exploring the history of utopian societies. But before we explore the roots of some of America's religious and secular communities, let's take a moment to examine some of the terminology— To many, Oroville may have sounded more like an Eastern cult than a community. So is there a distinction? And when we apply this label of cult to a community, how does it change our impression of it? Ben Zeller is Associate Professor of Religion at Lake Forest College and the author of Heaven's Gates, America's UFO Religion. Ben Zeller, welcome to Life Examined. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So as we explore this question of intentional communities and utopian communities, I, I know a lot of people listening are thinking, are these cults? Or, or when does one of these communities become cult-like? So I wonder if you could help us explore that question a little bit. When, when do some of these communities begin to take on cult-like attributes? I suppose the first answer to that question is, is, is just to note that there's no firm line because the idea of what counts as a cult is not clearly defined by anyone except for sort of the person using it at the moment. Uh, so I've found, for example, that groups that I consider relatively conventional religious organizations might be considered a cult by some of my students. Uh, and groups that I consider uh, rather cultish, perhaps, are often considered uh, ordinary religions by uh, by members or those who are close to them. The way we use the term cult generally means that it's it's something which is uh, culturally or socially deviant in some way. They do something or act in such a way that the rest of us consider them deviant. And that's relative. So that's the problem. Uh, it changes over time. It changes over, over place. And it changes depending on who you're talking to. Uh, but generally, to answer your question, I would say um, groups that are going to be considered cultish or cult-like are going to be groups that have perceptions, they're perceived to be highly deviant compared to the people around them. But that's going to depend on, on time and place. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's relative, just as you said. I, just out of curiosity, when when did this idea of a cult come into being? Is this a very old idea that's been circulating for hundreds, if not thousands of years? Well, the, the term is new. Uh, we, we don't see uh, historically people uh, people referring to groups they don't like as, as cults until the 20th century. Uh, the term before that was used was sect. Uh, so this, the sort of groups we would call a cult today would have been called a sect in the 19th century. And then if you uh, actually, I'm speaking outside of English, and the, the, the French term is sect as well. So it's um, the... Um, uh, but the idea goes back centuries. In fact, uh, when I teach a cl- I teach a class on cults, sects, and communes, and when I teach my class on that, uh, one of the things we look at is um, Pliny's letter to Trajan uh, back in early uh, Christianity, where the Roman governor uh, writes to the emperor and says, uh, "We have this this new group," and and the way he describes it is the way we would describe a cult. Of course, we we know it's Christianity, but the way it's being described is they have these bizarre rituals where they they're they're engaged in some sort of ritual cannibalism and. It's, you know, of course, if, if you know Christianity, that's the Eucharist. But to this Roman governor, it looked like 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 something disturbing. So it's the same idea, actually, of uh, the outsider looks in and says, well, this looks deviant. And so we're going to call it, uh, well, I don't speak Latin. I'm not sure what he called it. But <laughs> in English, we would say a cult. That's fascinating. Right. Of course, Christianity as as the first cult. I, <laughs> I hadn't thought about that, but that makes total sense. Um, do you, Would you say that in terms of our understanding of the word, um, that most of these communities uh, that we consider to be cults are, are spiritual in nature? 
Most of them are. When we're talking about intentional communities, the ones that, that last, that stick around, tend to be spiritual or religious in nature. Uh, so when I think about the communes of the, the 19th and 20th centuries and 21st centuries, uh, the ones that have lasting power tend to be united by by a single powerful purpose, and that purpose is usually religious or spiritual, or something sort of quasi-religious or spiritual. So um, I don't know, like a, a commune like the farm in Tennessee isn't explicitly uh, religious, but it was sort of it was it was there was spirituality diffused throughout it. Uh, so even though it it wasn't uh, a a religious commune, it. Uh, there was something very religious about the way people were treating the land and each other and sort of the idea of how to how to live. Um, so I would say I think that's a fair a fair assessment that there there tends to be a sort of a spirituality implicit within these groups. Talk about how you see the unfolding of these groups in America. Of course, there was a big resurgence of, of cult-like activity in the 70s or 60s. How do you understand the timeline of how some of this stuff came online in the U.S.? I think in the 20th century, there was a, a real sort of watershed moment, uh, mid-century. Uh, really, it erupted in the 60s, but it goes back a decade before that. When in the midst of of really um, great national success, at least for, for, for white folks particularly, uh, the idea that there was a rising middle class, that one could um, one could achieve the American dream, that there was education, that, that poverty was being slowly alleviated, there was uh, new medical technology, that things just seemed to be getting better, uh, at least for, you know, white middle class Americans, we, we should bracket it that way. Um, the, the children of these groups often, uh, the, ch- the children of these folks um, often looked around and said, is this all there is? Oh, so yeah, I can go to college. I can get a house. I can have two children, a white picket fence, and a dog and have a, a good job. But is that all there is in the world? And we start to see breakaway uh, cultural movements. I would say starting with maybe the beatniks, uh, then you look at the hippies, uh, the broader counter- counterculture. And a lot of these end up coalescing into intentional communities. Uh, so, I mean, if you think of some of the classic groups that um, that are around, I mean, the Hare Krishnas, for example, really coming out of the 1960s, 1970s, uh, mostly, you know, college-age kids that look around and say, you know what? Yeah, we've been handed the world in a silver platter, but we don't want it. And they were attracted instead by this alternative model coming out of India. And uh, some of the most uh, uh, long-lasting intentional communities are linked to to individuals who looked east. That was the turn east, as theologian Harvey Cox called it. And they embraced sort of this Asian spirituality, and that often led them to try to create alternative intentional communities, uh, communes, cults. Yeah, I just want to pause on that. I, th- I think that's so interesting to think of um, how intentional communities, or again, as some of us might think of them as cults, uh, kind of arise out of a very conservative or homogeneous period of American cultural activity, I guess, right? Um, that people are looking for something deeper or different that takes them out of the norm. It, we spoke to another author, Akash Kapoor, who grew up in Oroville, India, and he said, you know, the utopian community there, or he thinks most of them around the world, begin as a rejection of the state as is. I, I wonder if that's kind of part of what we're talking about here. I think that's a great point. I think mean, your guest is entirely right. I mean, there's there's sort of a, a utopianism. You know, the flip side of utopianism is always dystopianism, that they, they look at the state and say the state is dystopic in some way, uh, that it's it calls for conformity. It's calling for it, rooting everything in sort of, you know, capitalist success. Uh, one of the classic cases, this might be Rajneesh Param, also called the, the Rajneesh movement or the Osho movement. Uh, if any of your listeners are familiar with the Netflix documentary that was about them, Wild Wild Country, I want to say. This was a group, I mean, they got a, their ending was, was, was dramatic and traumatic, <laughs> but, um, uh, but they began with really this sense of utopianism. The people who joined this group were by and large the middle and upper classes, uh, initially in India, their founder Rajneesh came from India, but then when he came to Europe and the US, it was uh, Europeans and Americans. Uh, middle class, upper middle class, uh, Hollywood uh, moguls, even people who who looked around at the society and which had given them everything and said, this is not all it's cracked up to be. And they rejected the state and they rejected mainstream culture and society. And so we want to make something better. We want to create something ideal, the, the ideal society, the ideal community, the ideal religion. And uh, that's really where the Rajneesh Param experiment uh, in, in uh, Oregon came out of. And now that group ended spectacularly poorly. Uh, they had sort of a complete collapse of their leadership, which involved everything from attempted murder and poisoning. And it was it's sort of the case study in failure. But at least initially, it began with this utopian impulse of making everything better by rejecting everything else. 
You know, I think for a lot of people, the idea of cults comes wrapped in the notion of a very charismatic leader. Um, Do you think that, do you you find that to be true, that when you look at the history, a lot of this stuff, there is kind of, again, the term, the cult of personality or something like that at the center of these movements? Generally speaking, that's correct. You need uh, something to hold everyone together. That can be an ideal, but usually it works better with the person. So if we look historically at the, the cults, sects, communes, intentional communities, new religions, all of these groups, there tend to be charismatic leaders at the center because it takes a, it takes a lot of convincing to get people to abandon their lives and often go move into the middle of nowhere and adopt a totally new social and cultural uh, structure. Um, that, that's, a, that's a big ask. So Max Weber, who is the um, German sociologist of religion, who, who really you know, defines sort of charisma uh, in terms of leadership, he refers to it as the need to institutionalize charisma. The German word he uses is actually to make it everyday-like. Uh, if you can take the charisma of the leader and to make it everyday-like, to institutionalize it, um, then you can survive. Uh, so actually, the Mormon church is a great example. Um, its founder, Joseph Smith, um, was, uh, Mormons believe it was a prophet, uh, could, uh, could receive uh, a revelation from the divine as well as could, could translate the sacred text. After he was murdered, the Mormon church only survived because it institutionalized his charisma into an office. So even today, the, the leader, uh, the first presidency uh, of the Mormon church is considered a prophet. Uh, so they institutionalized that successfully. Um, many groups do not. Uh, when the charismatic leader passes away or, or is murdered or, uh, or, or departs for some other reason, the group just falls apart. There was an interesting argument, again, from our, our previous guest, Akash Kapoor, who said that Oroville was a community that began to potentially lose its foundational or philosophical underpinnings as its members started to have kids. And as the focus for some of these members began to be perhaps more on the children and the raising of the family than the greater ideals of the community itself, I wonder if that's something you've ever noticed um, in any of your research. That is an excellent point. All right, so here's the catch-22 for, for these sort of groups. Um, when people have children, for, first of all, when, when people pair off uh, it's called the dyadic intimacy problem. So there was a, um, a study of this. So when you have dyadic intimacy, that is a dyad, two people, um, their focus goes on each other and it, uh, there's less focus on the group. So dyadic intimacy is, is a problem. That's why groups like this tend to de-emphasize uh, uh, love-based marriages. They either do arranged marriages or they adopt free love or celibacy is a way around that. Uh, now, celibacy introduces significant other problems for having a long-lasting group. Uh, but uh, the, once people have children, so not only do you have the dyadic intimacy, you have a coupling, but you have children as well, of course their focus is there. So the successful groups have to mediate that, and there's different ways of doing that, either by sending the kids off to be uh, raised collectively by someone else uh, to de-emphasize the parental role, um, or by having a free love system where at least uh, no one's really sure who the fathers are to begin with, uh, so at least then you're only dealing with the mothers. Um, or, I mean, the, the, calling for complete celibacy is, of course, another way as well. Uh, again, then you have the problem of how do you get new members. Uh, the Shakers is actually a good example of that. That's a group that um, called for complete celibacy, but they would um, uh, adopt children into the group. Mm. Um, again, the group is defunct now. I think they're down to, I always say the group is down to one or two members. I have to check online. There's, I think there's one, one Shaker left. But here's a group which started, uh, they started before the American Revolution. So this group started wow. um, and, and started uh, really out of um, out of the, the, the 18th century, and because they embraced celibacy, uh, they were never going to last that long. When you look at all of these groups, some which have made it, many which have not, I wonder for you, what are some of the big takeaways that we can learn from whether they're cults or intentional communities or utopian communities? Like what 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 do we take from these from these places? My main takeaway from studying uh, cults, sect, communes, I tend to call these new religious movements. My main takeaway from studying new religious movements is that people are people. And these groups provide meaning. And they function like any other religion. Uh, They provide meaning. They provide value. uh, They provide family. They provide connection, social support. Uh, Some of these groups are bad. Some of these groups are good just like other religions. Um, some of these groups engage in activities which I consider unethical, immoral, improper, but members don't. 
Uh, some engage in, in activities that that's even outsiders would say are, are lovely and caring. Uh, and often it changes over time. A good example of this is the People's Temple, also called Jonestown. Uh, you know, your, your listeners, I'm sure uh, many of them will be familiar with, with the ending of Jonestown in, in South America with the, uh, the largest religious uh, mass suicide murder um, where you had uh, parents feeding poison to their, their babies. This is where the, the phrase don't drink the, the Kool-Aid comes from, although it was actually a flavor aid they used. Um, but you had this, uh, and they assassinated a uh, congressman. I mean, this was um, a disaster in, in every murder, uh, suicides. Um, but it actually began um, with, um, with uh, racial reconciliation, uh, with serving the poor and the indigent, uh, with trying to, uh, to connect to, to broader society and people around them. Jim Jones was considered a, an excellent preacher, a social activist, uh, deeply involved in, in, in peace and in racial reconciliation. At one point, the People's Temple, before it went to South America, was considered a, a partner of, um, uh, with, with governments, in, governments in, in, in California, both in San Francisco uh, and outside. And then over time, this group morphed, and they went from being uh, considered relatively mainstream um, to being considered about as alternative and about as aberrant as one can get. Um, what happened? Well, there's different interpretations. Uh, some are, are psychological. Jim Jones had a, had a radical break, that he became uh, paranoid, that he um, became narcissistic. Um, others are uh, sort of more historical in orientation, that this group always had at its root um, a, a deviancy, and its deviancy grew over time. There's different interpretations, but there's no denial. This is a group which, which began initially uh, with, with a seed which was very positive, that of racial reconciliation and serving the poor, and ended with something I think we can all agree is about as horrible as it can get, murder, suicide. Uh, and that's sort of a case study. Yeah. Well, well finally, Ben, just, just lastly, do you think that these groups will continue to exist into the future? I think there'll always be cults, sects, communes, intentional communities. Uh, with the birth of the internet, uh, we've seen fewer of them that need to meet in person. People can find their community online now. But there's always going to be interest in, in face-to-face interaction. I think perhaps living through the pandemic has taught us all that. Ben Zeller, Associate Professor of Religion at Lake Forest College, thank you so much for the time. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Take care. Still to come, America's 19th century utopian societies and how their influence is still with us today. Also, a quick note about the show, a big thank you to those of you that rated and reviewed the show recently on Apple Podcasts. We're just five ratings away from hitting the 100 mark, which is a big deal for growing the show. It only takes a second, and we really appreciate your support. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled, This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com slash cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. Way before the counterculture years of the 60s and 70s, the 17th and 18th centuries in America offered fertile grounds for those who had a utopian impulse. Maybe you've heard of the Shakers, the Oneida community, or the ideas of the Transcendentalists. Each community was founded on the notion that its society would be so appealing and perfect it would create a bigger movement. Most ended up collapsing, torn apart by realities of life and human nature— and yet each provides an interesting critique of the world in which they came to be. Chris Jennings is a writer and author of Paradise Now, the story of American utopianism, and he traces the history of some of America's brick-and-mortar utopian communities. He joins us now. Chris Jennings, welcome to Life Examined. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. There's a lot of great interpretations uh, all over the board of, 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 you know, formation stories of America, what America was supposed to be. And I wonder, is there one way in which we can understand America and that it was intended to be essentially um, one uh, very large or lots of little small utopian communities? This was partially what the country was, was founded on. What, what do you think about that? I, I think there certainly is a way to think of uh, 
the, the founding of the nation in, in utopian terms. I mean, we all are, are well acquainted with the extensive ways in which uh, it doesn't deserve that title yeah. and the, the, the sort of sins of, of the America's founding. But um, certainly some of the founders spoke in, in with utopian rhetoric and, and conceived of, of the notion of starting a, a new form of government in a new place very self-consciously in utopian terms. Um, you know, the idea of, of, of beginning the world anew, Thomas Paine famously wrote that there hasn't been an opportunity like ours, ours being the founding generations since since Noah and the flood. In other words, he he meant to imply that that with the founding of this republic they could they could start history from scratch, which is sort of at the root of the utopian impulse. Yeah. And I, I think also the sense of, of the North American continent, which of course was quite populated, but there was an impression of, of emptiness that Europeans had that that sort of fueled the uh, the utopian energy, both of the founding generation and, and of subsequent generations. The notion that that here was a place where, where history hadn't sort of uh, cluttered up the place and, and new ideas could be could be started afresh. Yeah, and part of this starting fresh um, is the idea that that Akash Kapoor in the first part of our series said is that a lot of utopian communities are founded initially by the sense of rejecting the state or the mainstream culture around them. Um, when you were looking at early parts of American history or 19th century utopian communities, do you think this idea of, of the rejection of the state um, holds true in the examples that you see? Absolutely. And, and I would say not just the state. I think one of the things that links various sorts of utopian enterprises, even with, with really different sort of visions of what the ideal society might be, is this idea of, of rejection. And, um, you know, in the United States, especially in the 19th century, but, but also in the 20th century, the, there were ideas that the, these institutions that we tend to regard as immutable. Even people sort of from the most progressive to the most conservative Americans tend to think of the nuclear family as something that has always existed and will always exist as a sort of base unit of society or, or um, some form of exchange or capitalism. Um, th- these are things that we, we tend to think of as, as non-negotiable when we establish societies. Part of what distinguished the utopians um, both in the United States and elsewhere, was to say, okay, maybe maybe the nuclear family is not not the proper arrangement for society. Mm-hmm. Maybe um, children shouldn't live with their parents. Maybe we shouldn't live in you know small groups of four or five or six, and uh, and maybe we don't need money. And maybe um, you know food should should be organized collectively. Those sorts of things are go beyond just a rejection of of the state, but a rejection of sort of the core of of the civilization. So what was happening in the 19th century that, that made people think, we, we need to start over again. We need to find new, creative, more meaningful ways of living. Particularly in the 19th century, I think the early Industrial Revolution kind of brought two things to the fore. There was this amazing new technology and this sense of abundance. You know, human productivity was like quadrupling with each passing decade. So there was a sense that in the not too distant future, all human needs could be rather easily supplied um, with very little work. And that was coupled with some of the darker realities of the early industrial revolution, which is, you know, uh, urban poverty, um, the sort of breakdown of a traditional agrarian way of life. And those two things combined to have people say, okay, A, we have this new abundance, and B, whatever this new world looks like, if left unchanged, is going to be quite disastrous. I mean, that, that was those were the same conditions that also inspired Marx and Engels in, in Europe to, to set about to write the Communist Manifesto. So it, it was this combination of, of great possibility and also contemporary conditions that were deeply unsatisfactory created the I think the confidence and again to return to uh, an earlier question of yours I think there was something about the imagined blankness of North America that also was sort of a goad to utopian thinking mm. um, you you want a new world and look here's this place where we're building one might truly be possible there's sort of liberal 
institutions that are sort of loosely governing a, a spread out population, this might be a place that we could really make a go of it. Can you give me an example of, of somebody or a group you found particularly fascinating? Sure. I mean, perhaps the the most successful uh, in terms of being popular and widespread utopian movement in American history, I think it's fair to say, was um, was based on the ideas of a, a, a Frenchman who never even came to North America named Charles Fourier, who, who envisioned a future, um, like a lot of his contemporary utopians, that was based on sort of small cooperative villages. And he had this incredibly elaborate uh, philosophy of what the right number of people would be, what the right sort of work schedule, what the right meal schedule would be, you know, a, a society worked out in, in startling detail. Hmm. His ideas didn't really make much of an impact in Europe, except for influencing subsequent socialists. But there was a wild craze for his ideas in the in the 1840s in the US. Communes built on his model were established all across the the, the sort of northeast and into the, the western frontier. Probably the most famous example of a, of a community established on Fourier's ideas is Brook Farm, which was just outside of Boston and is well known partly because it was home to a lot of the luminaries of the Transcendentalist movement. And, and Emerson and Thoreau were not members, but they were sort of associates of the community and frequent guests. And uh, Brook Farm wasn't started as a Fourierist community, though his ideas were already in the air uh, among some of its founders. But it, it sort of converted after a couple of years into one um, when, when the founders became very um, preoccupied with, with Fourierism and thought that that would be the way to turn what, what until then felt a bit to them like a sort of uh, elite idol, you know, it was a place where these literary types from Boston could go and, and write poetry mm -hmm. and, and live a sort of pastoral fantasy. They, they, they were somewhat radicalized by Fourier's ideas and thought they needed to, to build something that was more for the, for the working class. And, and um, it, it didn't succeed. It only lasted a short while after its sort of conversion to Fourierism, which ended up alienating some of the transcendentalists that were, that were around. Um, because they found his ideas too too rigid, you know. Emerson famously said of Fourier, who who who, like I said, had this incredibly elaborate vision for the future, that that he left out no single fact except for one, namely life. In other mm. words, it was a sort of life denying level of of uh, detail that he that he cooked into his plan. So so Brook Farm was just one of of many Fourierist communities, they were known as phalanxes that were established throughout the United States. Did they last? Did they fail? What what happened to them? They all failed in the sense that none of them are, are still here. Um, it kind of depends how you want to define failures. Yeah. Some of them lasted, you know, a matter of months, some of them a matter of, uh, of a few years. In, in, in the case of Fourier, none of them lasted, um, you know, even a decade. But but I think that you can count them a success in that many of them had really lasting influence on the people who lived there. Many of the ideas, and I think this is something that common to all utopian experimentation, many of the ideas that were first cooked up in these communities uh, and seemed sort of eccentric or wild at the time came to be more commonplace. Some of th certain institutions that we now take totally for granted would have been um, part of these utopian communities. The idea that there should be sort of free education for all children was a was a somewhat radical notion in the middle 19th century that was originally uh, espoused by some of these utopians. And now very few people would say that public schooling is a is a radical notion or that or that women should should have a you know an equal place in society and should do work with men that was something that alongside men that was something that was um considered utopian in its in its moment and now is is taken more or less for granted <laughs> can you talk about let's say uh, uh, another utopian community on on perhaps a different side of the spectrum that that is very fascinating that was maybe concurrent with Brook Farm or, or other utopian communities? Sure. I, I think perhaps the best known uh, utopian community in the United States 
certainly of a, the, an earlier, you know, pre-20th century would be the Oneida community, which was in upper New York state. And that, I think there's a lot of overlap between your, your conversation about Oroville and, and Oneida, because it had a strong spiritual and religious component. It's a community that, that in retrospect, I think, can blur the line a bit between cult and community. Um, though I would say that it was firmly on the, on the utopian side of that line. Um, it was it was founded by a, a sort of brilliant but extremely eccentric and, and somewhat autocratic man named John Humphrey Noyes, who, who was a, a well-educated New Englander who had a certain set of religious ideas about the ideal way to practice, you know, Christian life and, and established this community whose most famous and defining characteristic was something that they called complex marriage, which was a sort of free love arrangement, wherein theoretically, uh, though not in practice, any male member of the community could have sex with any female member of the community. And the, the idea being that, that the nuclear family was a sort of inherently anti-Christian institution. It turned people away from, from God and the fellowship of man. And so everyone within the community would be married to each other. Um, they all lived in one large house, a sort of mansion. And uh, amazingly, given what sounds like an extremely volatile situation, it thrived for three decades and, and eventually devolved into a sort of a corporation that, that went on to be very successful, first manufacturing animal traps and then uh, flatware and plates and things like that. It's interesting that the one theme that does seem to run through a number of, of utopian communities or, or, or cults is this idea of um, breaking sexual norms down and, and different levels of experimentation. Is, is that something you saw as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it gets back to the idea of, of what is the ideal human social arrangement and, and is, the, is the monogamous nuclear family the best way to live. A lot of the 19th century communities were, were influenced by various you know, interpretations of what they thought the ideal Christian society would be. And you know, there's some parts of the Bible that were read by certain people in the 19th century to say that, that, the, that the nuclear family was, was not an ideal arrangement. Um, interestingly, some of the same sections of the Bible that inspired, say, the Oneida community to practice their their complex marriage or, or what contemporaries might have called free love, those same bits of the Bible <laughs> inspired, say, the Shakers to, to adopt a, a fully celibate communal wife with no sex at all. And those seem like sort of opposite endeavors, one community having more sex than, <laughs> than normal and the other having none. Um, mm. Really, we're aiming at, at the same thing, which is the 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 dissolution of sex as, as something that sort of breaks society into subgroupings, namely the nuclear mm. family. Which is something that, interestingly, Akash Kapoor mentioned later in the interview, which was that certain aspects of Oroville um, may have broken down, or some thought that the the essence of the community devolved when members started having kids and the emphasis then became on the family, not necessarily on the greater philosophical ideals of the community itself. Yeah, that is a trend that, that can be seen at pretty much every single utopian community. Um, the, the Oneida community, which was sort of most famous for its experiment in, in community marriage, they eventually embarked on a, a program that, that John Humphrey Noyes, the the founder and sort of leader of the community called Stirpiculture, which is they were going to they were going to breed sort of an ideal race of, of future Bible communists. That's what they call themselves, perfectionists or Bible communists. And to do this, they were going to pick, you know, certain men and certain women and put them together and, and have them breed. And then those their offspring would be raised not by them, but as sort of the property of the community. And this would be the, the next step in their utopian program was to, to breed a sort of perfect, highly spiritual race. Mm. And that was indeed sort of the, the death knell of the community. It introduced all the usual uh, passions that surround family and, and parenthood and childhood. And, and things began to fall apart. And, and as soon as they uh, 
allowed just a little bit of <laughs> familial structure and people started getting married. The, the economic communism of the, of the community, the, the shared property unraveled almost immediately. So, it, you know, John Humphrey Noyes had always warned, you know, as soon as we let in marriage, uh, traditional marriage, the, the next step will be the dissolution of our economic communism. And that, that was certainly borne out. And at other communities, you do see that, that overpowering familial passions and desires to take care of your children and, and provide for them is usually a sort of a solvent in to the economic communism. It, 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 it starts to break down. I wonder, as you were researching, if there was anything that surprised you as, as you were doing this process or going through it, something that we hadn't, I haven't had a chance to ask you about, but, but kind of you felt was important in the research or to add to this conversation? I mean, I think the notion of utopia as critique is, is really worth dwelling on and, and interesting because I think there's sometimes a sense that these are, are, you know, up through the 20th century, the sort of charming artifacts of, of earlier eras and the sort of uh, follies that are fun to look at. But I, I do think that there's something sort of diagnostic about utopianism. It's, it's a way, you know, utopias are obsessed with the future. They're, they're building the future. But, but when we think of them in historical terms, it's this odd disconnect where you're looking at a, a previous era's vision of the future. And, and we, of course, have the, the sort of wisdom of the present and can say, well, that is not the future that, that came to pass. We live in your imagined future and it looks nothing like what you said it would look like. Um, so there's a sort of smugness <laughs> to the present when we, when we confront sort of antique visions of the future. Um, but I think that utop studying utopian history is, is a really um, unusually good way at seeing what people in the past really thought about their world. What were their biggest fears? What were their biggest anxieties? And what were their biggest hopes? In, in writing utopias, you know, fictional utopias, or in attempting to actually build these communities, we get a little window into, into sort of what were the anxieties of previous eras, what were the, the greatest ambitions. And I think that's, that's one, of the, one of the real gifts of, of looking at, at utopias of yore. And, 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 you know, some of the most famous literary utopias, whether it's Thomas More's Utopia or or Plato's Republic, there's this sort of ambiguity that hangs around them. Are these actual blueprints for the for the future, or are they sort of literary devices that that allow us to to think over the most important issues afflicting any society? You know, what is the what is the right way for us to to arrange ourselves to to create justice or, or equality or or maximum liberation? I think I think we do. Uh, ourselves a disservice if we're too smug about about utopia. I've been speaking with Chris Jennings. He's the author of Paradise Now, the story of American utopianism. Thanks so much for the conversation. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Well, as we begin to wrap up this week's program, we thought it would be important to hear from someone actually living in an alternative community. Today, we've talked about some fairly extreme examples of communities living out different ideals, most of which didn't last. But there are plenty of intentional communities all over the U.S. that exist right now, perhaps with less rigid rules and regulations. Many of them center around creative ways to share land and housing. Joining us now is Anna Newcomb, founder and resident of Blueberry Hill, a co-housing community of 19 units in Northern Virginia, just 20 miles from the District of Columbia. Anna Newcomb, welcome to Life Examined. Such a pleasure. So first off, uh, we're exploring this question of intentional communities. W would you describe where you live as an intentional community? Yes, I would definitely describe our co-housing community as intentional. And intentional um, to us means that we uh, have a a way of being around each other that might be different and, and, and it's an agreed way of being with each other. It might be different from your regular suburban no neighborhood, which we are, but we just have a have an intention to be good neighbors to each other is mm -hmm. basically our, our, our main intention. 
Yeah. Um, talk to me about some of the, the founding principles of what it means to be a part of your community. We did not invent this concept of co-housing. There are, uh, there's been a lot written about it, and there was a, a menu book for how to put it together. And we really just followed the co-housing principles that were already determined, which have a lot to do with having your architecture help in the engagement socially with the residents of the community. And so by architecture, we mean uh, having the space between homes be walkable rather than having cars in the middle. All cars and co-housing communities are on the periphery, not having uh, garages that would encourage us to be separate from each other, and also having a house that we own together called the common house, where we have meals together, we have a lot of meetings together, we share childcare together, we do projects together. There's a lot that happens through the architecture of a co-housing community that really engages us socially, even if we moved in and didn't intend to be in an, an intentional community. Yeah, that's really interesting. Talk to me a little bit about why you felt creating this type of a community was important to you. Why was this something that you were seeking out? It's, it was a very um, not lofty idea. It was really that I had three children. My sister had three children. We were both raising our children separately, each cooking our own meals, grocery shopping for our own families, and trying to keep our uh, professional lives afloat. And it felt like when we heard about this concept, it just felt like it made so much more sense to coordinate those activities and have it be um, fulfilling socially so that we wouldn't have to be all doing it by ourselves so mm -hmm. that we could be, if we're cooking, we could do it with others. In addition, my sister and I, Hannah and I both went to Oberlin college where mm -hmm. there were um, a system of co-ops where the 18 to 20 year olds who were there in college were also creating meals and feeding the hundred folks who are in that one co-op. So we had a lot of experience making decisions together with a large group and uh, working together and managing um, life in that way. So it did not feel quite as intimidating. And also the two of us grew up on a farm where we had land that was available to build. So it just yeah. felt like we would be crazy not to do it. And I think maybe you're speaking to something uh, a, a little bit deeper as well, which is there. there's a feeling for a lot of people um, as we scatter ourselves across the country, as you know, the, the nuclear family seems to be smaller and smaller, that, that people feel profoundly isolated wherever they live. And there is now a need, perhaps more than ever, to try and foster a sense of community, one we may have to create ourselves. Is that something that, that resonates with you or you think is true? Absolutely. It seems that all humans want to be in community or in, in relationship with others. They may not want to be in an intentional community, but the way that we have, at least in this country, set it up is that our the way that our neighborhoods are designed, it's not designed to be naturally that we run into each other. And so it's, it takes a lot of effort to get together and a lot of effort to coordinate your lives. And it's not natural necessarily to go out and work so hard to get together. Whereas in co-housing, it would take a little bit of effort to avoid people, which is possible and is um, absolutely accepted when you need it. But it definitely, um, isolation is definitely a part of how we set up our, our living situations in this country. And co-housing is a way of attempting to address that. Yeah. Can you talk about uh, your community a little bit? Um, is it made up of all all different types of folks, different backgrounds? Um, what what would a snapshot look like of the of the folks you're surrounded by? We have 19 families or 19 homes uh, all together in one common house, and in each of those homes, there's usually one nuclear family, sort of. There mm. there are several um, single people, and then there are a number of rental units within the houses, say a basement apartment where younger folks uh, are living who don't have children necessarily and don't necessarily have the means to own an entire house. So we have um, a range of 
uh, residents from, I guess our youngest might be two years and our oldest might be 80 something years mm. old. So mm. it's definitely multi-generational. And there's this sense that the children are all known by everyone and and accepted into many homes that children don't necessarily the children definitely know which homes they can just barge into <laughs> and definitely know which homes are not uh-huh. one of theirs for yeah. instance uh one of my neighbors is upstairs uh working and at his desk and he hears little zoe knocking on the door not knocking on the door barging in and saying i'm here i'm here i'm gonna come up and play with your toys so there's some children are quite bold and quite accepted about going into others' houses and just inviting themselves in for a meal or, or a game. Yeah, yeah. Um, are there any rules we have to gather or everybody needs to partake in certain meals or rituals or projects? How does that work? Our community was a little allergic to having rules when we started 20-something years ago. And we have... Um, we are maybe uh, dealing with some of the consequences of our ruleless society. We have um, a lot of social norms, absolutely, mm. that have to do with we uh, we expect people to participate in the management of our community, which means attending meetings and attending work days, helping with uh, managing the inside of the common house and managing the outside of the grounds. The only real rules that we have are sort of interesting is that you pay your HOA fees and that you park in the correct place. It it seems like an odd thing, but these are very, um, these are resources that it turns out we can't not have rules around who gets to park in certain spaces and uh, where guests park and that we must have your HOA fees in order to keep managing trash and insurance Mm -hmm. and snow plowing and that kind of thing. Other than that, they're mostly, we are, we are built on social capital, which is the folks who tend to do the most tend to have, it just so happens, the most influence on the choices and decisions that we make in our monthly meetings and in our many committee meetings. And people rotate in and out of how much they tend to be engaged depending on what's going on in their life at the time. But Mm. we do have, uh, very automated systems of paying for our common meals and making sure that the work gets done. We have a lot of systems that have developed over the years. And the every year we struggle with a different um, decision that we've made and we have to redo it. Mm-hmm. What are some of the, the challenges of this style of life? I mean, part of me is wondering, <laughs> what if there's just that really that person you just don't want to see and you got to see them all the time or, you know, little, little, that is is definitely the challenge is when you are supposedly committed to being a good neighbor, you feel guilty when you are not, and we are Mm -hmm. not always good neighbors to each other. Uh, We are not, uh, each of us has inside of us a toddler that wants to be unkind or, or have a temper tantrum. And sometimes those temper tantrums happen in meetings or they happen Mm -hmm. when we're out working together. And in a normal community, you could hide away for uh, six months or so and just try not to interact with the other folks. But in this community, we, you, you actually can do that. It's just, it comes at a cost of not being able to go to meals. In this community, we have to kind of face our relationship challenges with each other. Mm-hmm. And we have a, an actual committee called the People Committee that helps us think about how we would approach building, rebuilding relationships after we have naturally over time had some relationship challenges. So each one of us has had our own little hissy fits at various times. (laughs) And we, (laughs) so none of us is, is spared from that. Some of us more than others. And we have to just figure out how to become not as reactive as we might when somebody is having a moment. Mm. You know, we we've heard about lots of different types of communities on on this program. Um, you know, last week, we heard about Oroville in India, and it was interesting how our guest Akash Kapoor was saying that one of the reasons that he thought Oroville existed is because um, the community remained flexible, and there actually were a lack of rules. I have heard of that with other co-housing communities, and I have to admit, I have not been a very dedicated co-houser to go and visit lots of other communities, but I've definitely heard that there are some communities that struggle a lot with maintaining their initial um, joie de vivre because they Mm. have these specific ways that we must interact with each other and how many times we must go to meals or we have to work, how many hours we have to work. And in the beginning, we were uh, quite determined not to have specific rules because we had this sense 
that rules would create conflict that was unnecessary because we knew among our own selves that we would shift over time regarding how much we wanted to participate or what was really, really yeah. important to us at that yeah. point and how the, and so we make a lot of decisions along the way and then we have to change them often mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. different people move in and they have different needs. So it's, I would love the idea that our instinct to have fewer rules and more norms has been healthy for us because we're in a, a pretty good place with this community, which has survived COVID with great um, uh, social um, expansiveness, meaning for every day that we had COVID looming over us, we had a happy hour at five, at six o'clock where mm. people would come out and just check in, just check in, you know, just say, are you still alive? How are you doing? And then yeah. we go back into our house. And so we've been continuing to just these tiny little rituals that built up as a result of people feeling uh, fairly isolated in their homes now that we're working from home, but not wanting to really change the feeling entirely of the community. Yeah. Well, for those that are listening and, and kind of are, are curious about, about intentional communities or co-housing, I wonder if there's just kind of any anything you'd leave us with in terms of what this experience has meant to you, um, how you've seen it play out in your life, things that have surprised you in the journey. Um, anything that you would you would add to our conversation? I would say that being committed to being a good neighbor is not always easy. And it has greater rewards than being isolated, I believe. Mm -hmm. I think that if you were to um, choose to move into a community where you would be in relationship with others, the best way to do it is to get educated about how various communities have expressed that those values and choose one that seems to fit you. Or if you're going to design one, definitely uh, have a lot of conversations with folks who have built those and moved into them. Uh, I have no regrets around choosing to um, do it a little bit the hard way by being in community and a lot the easy way by being in community. Mm. Could you ever imagine going back to living uh, outside of a, a place like your, your community right now? Perhaps only as a sabbatical. I think it could be an interesting <laughs> taste to have a six months of going and seeing what it was like and then, but not selling my home. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Anna Newcomb, thanks so much for, for sharing a little bit of your life and your community with us. Um, I've enjoyed, enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Once again, that was Anna Newcomb, founder and resident of Blueberry Hill, a co-housing community of 19 units in Northern Virginia. And this wraps up our two-part series, Searching for Utopia on Life Examined, right here on KCRW. If you missed part one of the series with Akash Kapoor, you can find it wherever you listen to podcasts or at kcrw.org slash lifeexamined. Our producer who pulls the show together every week is Andrea Brody. Thanks as always to all of you for spending part of your day with us. I'm Jonathan Bastian, and as always, we'll see you next week.